If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy, to chapter 10, as we pick up today in verse 14, which begins, Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, and also the earth with all that is in it. Why does the heavens and the earth belong to the Lord our God? Because he made them. He created them out of nothing. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 6. It says, You alone are the Lord. You made heaven. The heaven of heavens, with all their hosts. What's it mean with all their hosts? The stars, the sun, moon, and stars. It says, the earth and everything on it. The seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. Here, what does the host of heaven mean? The angelic hosts. So who is the you? You who are the Lord. Who is that? Let's go to John 1 1 and see if we can tell. John 1 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. So, who is this Word? This is our Messiah, Yeshua. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So wait a minute. The Old Testament says the Lord made heavens and the earth. The New Testament says Yeshua made heavens and the earth. Which one's right? They both are because Yeshua is the Lord. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 16 and 17. For by him, through our Messiah Yeshua, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So if he is the Lord... Throughout the Old Testament. Every time the scripture says. And the word of the Lord came to me saying. Who delivers the message? Our Messiah Yeshua. But he wasn't born yet. He's always been. The lamb slain from the foundations of the world. You're absolutely right. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're up to verse 15. The Lord delighted only in your fathers. Meaning what? He chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob out of all the peoples of the world. Now people might go, well, how can that be true? But remember, Abraham's born about the time of what? The Tower of Babel. 
At that time, were people in the world worshiping God? Were they walking in his ways? No, they were not. The ancients tell us, right or wrong, that it was Shem who taught Abraham about God. That is Shem, the son of Noah. The Shem who was on the ark, who knew God personally. And that it was from Shem that Abraham learned that all those pagan gods the rest of the world were worshiping aren't gods at all. Hmm. So verse 15, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. Therefore, ooh, that's the point of 15, is that therefore, because of that, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. So we see that circumcision of the heart is related to because it's the opposite of, the antonym of, being stiff-necked. If you go back to Deuteronomy 9.6, he's referring to the stiff-neckedness because he's just talked about it in Deuteronomy 9 verse 6. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good end to possess because of your righteousness for you are a stiff-necked people. So here righteousness is opposed to stiff-neckedness if there is such a word. And stiff-necked means like a horse where you've got the bridle in his mouth and you're yanking on the reins and it doesn't matter. He's still going where he wants to go. His way will not be turned just because God wants him to turn. So the cure for stiff-neckedness is circumcision of the heart. Not of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, where it defines for us what that means, circumcision of the heart. Do we call up a heart surgeon and go and have him grab a scalpel and start whacking away? No. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to, here's what circumcision of the heart means, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Also the Lord your God will put on these all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecuted you, and you will again obey the voice of the Lord and do all his commandments I command you today. You see how circumcision of the heart removed the stiff-neckedness. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, you want to be obedient. You want to walk in love. And what did Messiah say in John 14, 15? If you love me, comma, keep my commandments. The love of God is related to obedience. God doesn't want us to be obedient because we're afraid. He wants us to be obedient because we're in love. Because we want to. It's our heart's desire. Let's go to Jeremiah 4.4. 4. Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4. Jeremiah.
Jeremiah 4.4 adds a, I wouldn't say a veil threat because there's no veil. It says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. Take away that portion of the heart that hated God, that wanted to be disobedient, that wanted to be stiff-necked. says, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. So another term for circumcision in the heart is what? Repentance. Repentance. So the Lord says, if you remain stiff-necked, if you refuse to turn to me in faith and love, then how does God treat those who hate him, those that are his enemies? He says he pours out his wrath on them. Is this the only place where it says that? No. Isaiah 66 is a good one. Let's turn back to Isaiah 66, where God tells us, as he does in so many places, that he divides the world into two categories. Isaiah 66, especially verse 14 and following. Isaiah 66, beginning in verse 14, says, When you see this, that is God comforting Jerusalem, your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord, which is his protection, the shadow of his wings shall be known to his servants and his indignation, the wrath of God being poured out in the tribulation period to his enemies. So if you have a choice, do you want to be amongst the servants or the enemies? Do you want God's blessing or his cursing? You want his blessing. For behold, the Lord will come with fire. What is fire picture in prophecy? Judgment. And with his chariots like a whirlwind that is so fast, so hard, nothing can stand in front of him. To render his anger with what? Fury. Fury. Is he a little unhappy? No, he's full of wrath. And his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge whom? All flesh. Doesn't say just say the Jewish people, does it? All flesh. And the slain of the Lord shall be many. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 17, it says, who's going to be included? Those who sanctify themselves and purify themselves to go to the gardens after an idol in the midst. The word gardens doesn't mean to us what it means in the scripture. A garden is a grove of trees. Where did the pagans worship their gods? In the groves, under the evergreen trees. After an idol in the midst, eating swine's flesh. What's a swine? The pig. And the abomination in the mouse. There's the other unclean foods. Says, shall be consumed together, says the Lord. This I like to show people who say, oh, I can eat anything I want and God doesn't care. What's going to happen to those eating a ham sandwich when the Lord returns? Says they're going to be slain, they're going to be consumed. Is that so they can go to heaven more quickly? No. No, quite the opposite. Yes, ma'am. Okay, um, in 17. In 17. It separates out um, swine's flesh and the abomination and the mouse. Right. Um, is there 
different word for abomination? What would that mean? Abomination is a special category of sins that are especially abhorrent to God. So that's referring to the other kinds of unclean animals. He separates the swine, the pig, because that's what the pagans would sacrifice to their gods. So that's why it's such an abomination to God. He separates it as if saying, most people these days are not going to be eating, oh, skunks, roadkill, but swine. How many restaurants do you go to and they find pork on everything? They're even putting pork in ice cream these days, bacon-flavored ice cream, to make sure everybody gets their daily piggy. Okay, yuck, yuck. Let's go on back to... Wine. Yes, some, or not. What's that? I just had, I had a friend of mine come up to me, I think it was last week, going, you know, well, God, don't you believe that God loves everyone? And I was like, well, yeah, I do. He, he does love everyone. Here, it's literally stating that... God shows the distinction between those who obey and those who don't. It's hard for me to say that he loves everyone when you're being disobedient. Yep. Go to Romans 2.29. You're absolutely right, Rachel. God makes a distinction between his servants, those who love him, those who come to him by faith and obey him, and those who reject him and turn away. Go to Romans 2. This is not the only place in scripture where we find that distinction. Far be it. Romans chapter 2, verse 29. Still talking about circumcision of the heart. We'll start in verse 28 for context. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. In the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Because the word Jew means one who serves the true and living God. One who praises God. He says, unless you've been circumcised in the heart, then that's not where you are. If you're in that stiff neck category, he says, you're not praising God. But this is describing the Israel of God like we talked about last time. Yeah, describing the Israel of God like we talked about last night. <clears throat> Back to Deuteronomy chapter 11. No, 10. We're still on 10. I look at the little note at the top of the Bible. It says Deuteronomy 11 colon 3. But that's where the page ends, not begins. Okay, sorry. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. For the Lord, see how Lord is spelled, the tetragrammaton? That's the same way Lord was spelled in verses 14 and 15. When it referred to our Messiah Yeshua, it still does. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. Where else do we see Messiah referred to as King of kings and Lord of lords? Revelation 19, huh? It's referring here again to our Messiah. The great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. First thing we've got to say is, this appears to call our Messiah Yeshua God. Are there other scriptures that do? Give me one. Go to John 10 where he says, I and the Father are one. 
So that's in John chapter 10. It happens at Hanukkah, which is coming up very shortly. God bless you. John chapter 10, verse 31. I and my Father are one. We are a chad. Does that remind you of the Shema? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's only one. Now, people say, yeah, yeah, this didn't mean that he and the Father are actually one. It just means they think alike. Why did they try to stone? That's exactly right. Look at the next verse. And the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They understood exactly what he was saying, that he is God in the flesh. And if verse 31 doesn't convince you, look at verse 33. The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, and because you being a man make yourself God. So they understood it, whether modern theologians do or not. Give me another. Colossians 1 says he's the image of the invisible God. Let's go look at that. It's right before what we read from a few minutes ago. We read from Colossians 1, 16 and 17. But in the verse above, verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. By image means, why can't we look upon the face of God? God in heaven is a spirit, right? So whenever he takes on a body, he's referred to as Yeshua, as the image of the invisible God. How about... Isaiah chapter 9. What song do we sing? By Shemo? From Isaiah chapter 9. Verse 6. For unto us a child is born. What's that in Hebrew? Kiyelad yulad lanu, right? The next phrase, unto us the son is given, ben nitan lanu. So the first phrase is his first coming. The next phrase, unto us a son is given, is the second coming. The government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. And then what's El Gabor? Mighty God. Gabor isn't just mighty. It means a mighty soldier, a mighty man of valor. Because when Messiah returns in Revelation 19, is he coming for peace? No, he's coming for war. Titus 2.13. Let's look at Titus 2.13. What was the verse in Isaiah 9? Isaiah 9.6. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Titus. Now in the New Testament, all the books that begin with a T are in alphabetical order altogether. And you said Titus 1.9? I wasn't even close. <laughs> Titus 2.13. Oh, look at that. I've got a bracket drawn around it. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Are these the only places we could turn to that call Yeshua God specifically? The answer is no, there's more. But let's go back to the topic of... Shows no partiality, nor takes a bribe. Hmm. What does the Lord say about bribes? They corrupt justice. They corrupt justice. 
And what is Messiah known for in Isaiah chapter 11? Righteous judgment. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. So when you stand before the Lord on judgment day, can you offer him a bribe to let you into heaven? Nope. Afraid not. Isaiah 11, verse 3. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the righteous, right? Oh, no, no, it says he shall slay the wicked. So again, he separated the world into two categories, the righteous and the wicked. What's another term for the wicked? The lawless. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Mm, Okay, back to Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 18. I'm sorry, chapter 10. Oh, well. I need a timeout. Now, Deuteronomy 10.18. He ministers justice for the fatherless. What are fatherless? The orphans. And the widow. And loves the stranger. Giving him food and clothing. The fatherless, the widows, the strangers. Why do these matter to God? These people have little to give to God. They're the ones easiest to get picked on. They don't have a means for income. Is God looking for what we can give him or is he looking for our hearts? He's looking for those that are grateful for what he's done for them, right? Pure and undefiled religion. That sounds like the book of James. Chapter 1, verse 27. It's almost like you've peeked at my notes, but I know you haven't. You want? Really good eyesight. Really good eyesight. I was thinking about that. You're thinking about the orphans. Because they're not, when we say that word, I think a lot of times people think of children, but there are teenagers and millennials and adults and elderly who are orphans also. And they, they may have the means to, financial means to take care of themselves and that sort of thing, but there are also the emotional and spiritual uh, things that they need from a fellowship of, of people to be con- for for that to be a family to them, to be there for them, and we often forget those categories. Yep. Yeah. So let's try not to forget them. But let's go to James one verse twenty seven. Mm-hmm. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Think back to the days of the Bible. An orphan, one who has no parents. How do they feed themselves? How do they survive? 
They might have to beg, they might have to steal, some might have to support them, or they simply starve to death and die. Gleaning from the corners of fields. Gleaning from corners in the fields, they do what they have to to survive, or they don't survive at all. And that's true of the orphans we support down in Kenya. If we stop the support, many of them would simply starve to death. They have no way to support themselves. Go to Job 22. Job 22. God talks a lot about our responsibility toward widows and orphans. Job 22. One way God cares for the widows and orphans is through his people who are willing to be generous and share what they have. You know, if you had friends like Job's, you wouldn't need enemies. But Job's friends are trying to explain how he has suffered so much loss. And one of the ways they say in verse 9, you have sent widows away empty, and the strength of the fatherless was crushed. So they say, you must have been so wicked as to let orphans and widows starve to death rather than lift a finger to help them. Is that true? No. Go to Isaiah 10. Do they have any reason to think that? No, they were just being friends. They were going yeah. down the list of things that you shouldn't do and claiming Job. They, they had a list. Yeah. Isaiah 10 2. We'll start in verse 1 for context, but 2 is where the meat of it is. You know, also, I think that they probably were, Job's friends were like, I don't want this to happen to me, <laughs> so it has to be this, this, and this. <laughs> yeah. Well, sometimes, too, we see somebody this more righteous, more is truly living a righteous life or trying to live a righteous life best they can and we become envious of them. You know, and our convictions, our heart is convicted of our own inadequate shortcomings, sins, and then we, we kind of try and throw, throw our faults off on others. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in Isaiah, Come on in. Hey, how you doing there? Good. <laughs> Been a long time. Yeah. Come in, folks. That's all right. Dothan's a long way from here. <laughs> Come on in. We are studying the book of Deuteronomy chapter 10, whatever you may hear me say. <laughs> At the moment, we have taken a cross-reference from Deuteronomy 10.18 over to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 2. Hello. So we're in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 2, but we're going to start in verse 1 for context. It says, Woe to those who decree unrighteous decrees, who write misfortune, which they have prescribed, to rob the needy of justice, and to take what is right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. So he's talking about religious and civil leaders in Israel, that instead of looking after the poor, the widows and the orphans, to make sure that they are cared for, to make sure that they're fed, 
and provided for, instead are taking bribes under the table to take the lands of widows and to take away what the widows and orphans actually had. And they're doing it through unrighteous decrees. And the portion of Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 18 we're looking at is about protecting the widows and orphans. So the next cross-reference is in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25 is about the tribulation period. And what happens in the tribulation period when someone refuses the mark of the beast, they get saved by faith and they serve the true and living God. Their lives are on the line. Do they have the ability to buy and sell without the mark? No. So how are they going to feed themselves if they can't buy and sell? They're going to rely on Abba. That's right. And Abba is going to provide through other believers. So in Matthew 25, the parable where they separate the sheep and the goats at the judgment of Messiah's return. He's going to judge between sheep and goats based upon what kind of love did you show to your neighbors who were in peril. So Matthew 25, starting in verse 31, says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, they will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then a king will say to those in his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then a righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in? Or naked and clothe you? Or when do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, As surely I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. Who are the least of these my brethren? The outcasts. People that are in prison, for example, you've got to be more specific. Who's he judging? He's judging between the sheep and goats. He's judging the Gentiles. When he says the nations, the Gentiles, these my people, he's talking about the Jewish people that have become believers. They're the ones the false Messiah most wants to kill. Because Messiah said in Matthew 23, 39, that he won't return until they cry. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they are doing all they can do to wipe out the believing Jewish people. And the Lord says to the Gentiles who've come to faith and have protected these people that as much as they did it to one of the least of these, his brothers, they've done it to him. So you, were, you say that the enemy wants to destroy Israel because of the scripture being fulfilled would be for, be fulfilled when the unbelievers, Jews, because of the, the, the scripture quote, I will not return to it. They say, "Blessed 
seed who comes in the name of the Lord. Yeah, Matthew 23, 39. So, so then the enemies want to destroy them all so that they can't. They won't be able to Exactly. Save them. If Satan could annihilate all the Jewish people before they can cry out for Messiah to return, then he can't return. Right. And Satan wins. Where in the scripture do we see that attempting to be done? Revelation 12. So let's turn to Revelation 12, which is at the midpoint of the tribulation period. Revelation 12, Satan gets kicked out of heaven, he knows, but he has but a short time, right? That's Revelation 12, 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. The earth refers to the Jews, the sea to the Gentiles. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. Verse 13, now when the dragon saw he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman, that's Israel, who gave birth to the male child, that's Messiah, being born in the hearts of the children of Israel. When Romans 11:26 is fulfilled, which says, and all Israel shall be saved. I got a red one out here. Let me see what that is. The answer is both, Cassandra. Okay. So verse 14, but the woman's given two wings of a great eagle. That is not the United States. That's the shadow of God's wings. All the way back in Exodus, he's described as being like the wings of a great eagle. That she might fly into the wilderness to her place. Where will she be protected during the tribulation period? Petra. Petra. Where she is nourished for a time, times and a half a time, that's three and a half years from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. He wants to destroy Israel. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. He went to make war with the rest for offspring. Who, what? Keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. So yeah, he wants to wipe them out before they can cry for his return. Back to Deuteronomy 10. 10, not 11. Yes, ma'am. I just saw something I never even saw before. What's that? And the earth helped the woman. The earth helped the woman, yeah. Nice. And how's that going to happen? You've been there. Remember Petra? As you go down... As you go down that long seek toward Petra, it's very narrow and it's very long, about a mile and a half long. And there's huge mountains up both sides. And as you look, every few yards, there's huge portions of that rock face that are separated from the rest of the mountain. You can see daylight through it. And it's just waiting for the earth to shake and it's going to fall in and it's going to seal up that seek all the way down. So there's going to be no entrance to Petra from the ground. So why doesn't the false Messiah attack them from the air? What's Isaiah say? God will defend them from the air. Yeah. If you've never been there, you need to go. Okay. Deuteronomy 10. Back to verse 19. Therefore love the stranger... For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. The strangers being talked about here are the Ger Hashar. 
the non-Jewish people that have moved into the land of Israel because they want to worship the God of Israel. Give me an example from the book of Ruth. Ruth. <laughs> yeah, Naomi was Jewish, but Ruth was not. She was a Moabitess. But what did she say? She had a sister-in-law, Orpah, and Naomi told them both to go back home, and Orpah said, see you later. And Ruth said what? And where you die, I die. And I ain't leaving till then. We paraphrase. That's what the Gir HaSha'ar is. The one who doesn't want to be a pagan anymore. The one who wants to worship God as one of the people. They're grafted in like a wild olive tree. Grafted into a cultivated tree. You were there when Jonathan Kahn taught the Goran. You, you can hear yourself on the tape. Yeah. That. If you've never heard it, you ought to listen to that one. That's that a goodie. So good. Yeah. Yeah, Jonathan's so, come a long way. Yeah. <laughs> so therefore love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. How do we know the word stranger doesn't mean pagan? Because Israel were not pagans in the land of Egypt. They simply dwelt in a land that was not theirs. If they're dwelling in a land that's not theirs... Where do they get their food? If they don't own a portion of land, they can't grow their food. So what does God have everybody do with the corners of their fields? They're available to the stranger. God provides through the people who honor, trust, and obey him. Verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him. And to him you shall hold fast. What does it mean to hold fast? Stay there. To cling to. Don't let go. Be steadfast. Be immovable. And take oaths in his name. We looked a few minutes ago at those who serve him in Isaiah chapter 66. How does God treat those who serve him? Those who are obedient to him. Those who love him. Come to him by faith. His protection is on them. What about if they're not born Jewish? Is there a portion of the scripture that talks about them? That's Isaiah 56. Go back to Isaiah 56. Starting in verse 6. Let's look specifically at the non-Jewish people. Also the sons of the foreigner. Nakar. One who's an alien born outside of the land. Not part of the people. Who join themselves to the Lord to serve him. Are they pagans? They used to be but they're not anymore. They're like Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess had served Moloch, etc. But here they've joined themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his what? Servants. Servants, those that are obedient to him. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain, make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. 
My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. What time period is this fulfilled in? Is this under biblical times? Do they allow Gentiles to come into the temple and offer that? No. This is in the millennial kingdom. So who from the Gentile nations are going to be welcomed into the millennial kingdom? Those who join themselves to the Lord to serve him. Why do they do that? They do it out of faith and love. To love the name of the Lord. Notice they're very specific to say they're obedient out of love, not out of fear. But because they love the Father. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. Holds fast my covenant would include keeps from defiling the Sabbath. So why does God separate that one out and mention it separately? Because the Sabbath is the sign that you worship the two and living God. Give me a scripture. Exodus 31. Go back to Exodus 31 and see it. What if I don't want to keep the Sabbath? I'd rather do, I don't know, let's say Sunday instead. Yeah, Exodus 31, 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, what is the word saying? It's a quote. Speak also to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbath you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. That word sign in Hebrew is oat. It's like the wedding ring as Daniel was holding up. How do we know Daniel's married to Candy? Hold up your rings. <laughs> okay, back to Deuteronomy. Ryan, you know, if, if, you're, uh, if you want to honor somebody, you, you honor their commands. What God commanded us to keep his Sabbath. Well, if we're keeping some other day as the Sabbath, then we're honoring whoever that individual is to establish that. Yep, that's Romans chapter 6, isn't it? It happened to be a dead pope who established that. Yep, so, you're absolutely God right. God will honor a dead pope. Yep. You are that one servant whom you obey. Romans chapter 6. You're right, Jeff. Back to Deuteronomy 10. Verse 21. He is your praise. What's that mean, he's your praise? He is the one you praise, the one you give thanks to, the one you appreciate for all that he's done for you. What has God done for us? Has he done anything for you? He feeds us, he clothes us, he houses us, he heals us. He sent his only begotten son. Yes, ma'am? I was going to say the same thing. You were going to say the same thing. That middle wall of partition. Ephesians chapter 2. How did God break down that middle wall of separation? Yeah, but there's more to it than that. That's Acts chapter 10. Took away the enmity, the hatred. Yep. All that's true and good. So back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. We're up to verse 22. Oh, we didn't finish 21. He's your praise and he is your God. Your meaning personal. He's not just a God. He is your God. If you've come to him by faith, serve him out of love, he is your God. Who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. The people to whom Moses is speaking were there in the wilderness. 
They saw the ten plagues in Egypt. They saw the parting of the Red Sea. They saw manna from heaven. They saw water from the rock. They saw that for 40 years, their clothes and shoes did not wear out. They saw miraculous things. They saw God defeat Sion and Og, who were kings that were giants. That terrified the people because they were so big. But what were they to God? Nothing. Nothing. So verse 22. Moses is going to take them all the way back to the time of Jacob. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons. And now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. How long was Israel in Egypt? About 210 years. They went in with 70 persons and came out in the millions. How is that possible? You're right, Jeff, the mixed multitude. Either each woman had 10,000 children at a time, or it's the mixed multitude grafted in. How do we know there's a great mixed multitude? Where does it tell us that? That's in Exodus chapter 12. Turn back to Exodus chapter 12, because it's important. Yes, it is. Exodus 12. Verse 38. A mixed multitude went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. Where were the mixed multitude from? Why does it call them a mixed multitude? They were from all the nations because Egypt had conquered the world. So who was at Mount Sinai? Israel and representatives of all the nations. When God spoke, everyone heard him in their own language. How do we know that? Yeah, in Exodus chapter 19, our English Bibles say thunderings, but it's the Hebrew word kalot, which means voices. And then in Acts chapter 2, when Peter spoke, everyone heard them in their own language. They had just studied what happened in Exodus 19 because it was Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks. Okay, back to Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 22. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. Go back to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. Because what Moses is saying to the people and they understand is God kept his promises to you. God has done exactly what he promised to do. Genesis chapter 22 verse 17. Let me give you a chance to find it. Oops, and let me check the red number one out here. Do, 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 do. What exactly does taking oaths in his name refer to? It means that, for instance, when you go through a marriage ceremony, you promise to be faithful to each other. You do that on the name of God. And then when you keep that vow, keep that oath, you honor the name of God, you show that it is not profaned, 
that it is to be special. Okay, Genesis 22:17 says, "Blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, that's Messiah, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have what? Obeyed my voice. In Genesis 15, 6, it says, And Abram believed God, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Now it says, Because you have obeyed my voice. Was he saved by faith or by works? He was saved by faith, and his works show that his faith was real. That's exactly correct. Very good. But here, God promised to make Abraham's descendants like the stars of heaven. So what is Moses telling the people in Deuteronomy 10.22? That the Lord kept his promise. Look also at Genesis 26 verse 4. Genesis 26 verse 4. In chapter 22 verse 17, that was God's promise to Abraham. In Genesis 26 verse 4, it's God's promise to Isaac. Genesis 26, verse 4. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Again, that seed is Messiah. Verse 5 says, Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my Torah, my laws. So both in the promise to Abraham and the promise to Isaac, making the descendants multiply like the stars of heaven is just the first part of the promise, isn't it? What's the next part? Yes, Phil. No, it's Brad. Hey, Brad. Yeah, I have a question. Go ahead. Um, you mentioned that they were in what, 270 years, and yet we commonly hear 400. 210. 210. Can you kind of give us a, a reconciliation of those two? Yes. Brad wants a reconciliation of, it says 400 years. Why do I say 210? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 15 where the promise is given to Abraham. While he's still called Avram, which means exalted father. Before God changed his name to Avraham, which is father of a multitude. Verse 12, Genesis 15, starting in verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Avram, that's Abraham. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he, that is the Lord, said to Avram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they'll afflict them four hundred years. They will be strangers for 400 years. But they're not in Egypt for the 400 years. The 400 years starts with the birth of Isaac. Where was Isaac a stranger? He was in the land of Canaan. Where was Jacob a stranger? He was in the land of Canaan until the very end of his life when he and his sons went down into Egypt. So the 400 years counts from the birth of Isaac, not from the time they go into Egypt. 
Then there's another scripture that says 430 years from the time the promise is made to Abraham until they come out of Egypt. Is Isaac born when God makes this promise to Abraham? The answer is no. He's not born for 30 years. So it's 430 years from the promise to Abraham. It's 400 years from the birth of Isaac. But they don't go down into Egypt until Jacob has 12 sons. And that's almost 200 years later after the birth of Isaac. How old was Jacob when he married? He was, yes. It's really good to hear you lay that one out. The, um, the, the Jewish position and the, and the church position right up until the age of enlightenment was exactly what you've laid out. It's at the age of the enlightenment that you begin to get all this mix up happening. And um, even the uh, reformed Judaism follows the, uh, the wrong one. Orthodox uh, are still, uh, as you put it, and uh, the early church certainly followed that, that way of laying it out. I don't understand why uh, so many evangelicals get it all mixed up. The scripture says to study, to show yourself approved, and they didn't. That's all I can guess. They were still, they weren't in captivity when they originally went in because Joseph was in charge. Right. When they first went into Egypt, they were not in captivity. Uh, the captivity came after the death of Joseph. Well, actually, I got to back up. When the Israelites first go into Egypt, Egypt is ruled by the Hyksos. The Hyksos dynasty is from Padanaram. They had conquered the native Egyptians, the Coptic Egyptians. And Padanaram, if you remember, that's where Abraham's father settled. Those are relatives of the Jewish people, so they were treated very well. By the time Israel comes into slavery, the Hyksos have been defeated and driven from Egypt, and the Coptic Egyptians are back in charge. And now they're afraid of the children of Israel because they're related to the Hyksos that had taken control of Egypt for so long. And that's why they put them under harsh bondage, because they were afraid they would raise an army and try and take Egypt back for the Hyksos. That's more than anybody needs to know, probably. Well, it's actually important that you cover all that because those are the kinds of things that people that are not knowledgeable bring up to try yep. to disprove the Bible. You know, ah. They yep. just look at it on the surface and never, and say it says this there and that there, you know, and they try to disprove the Bible because they never bother to do what you just did. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Is that why they um, were basically trying to kill all the Hebrew babies? That's exactly why. Not just all the Hebrew babies, but the males. Which ones grew up to be soldiers? Right. Yeah. So they were trying to prevent an uprising to take the nation back for the Semitic peoples. The Coptic Egyptians descend from Ham. And the Hyksos and the Jews descend from Shem. So they're from different sons of Abraham. And if you remember, it was prophesied early on that there was going to be conflict between the descendants of Shem and Ham. Yep. Let's go to Exodus 32. Exodus 32, verse 13. 
It says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I'll multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I've spoken of, I give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. So now go back to Deuteronomy 11.22. When Moses is speaking to Israel, they are not yet in the promised land, right? They're on the west side of the Jordan River, getting ready to cross over into the land. This is the last few days of Moses' life. And because God has kept the promise to make them like the stars of heaven, what will they think about, and he's going to give us this land? If God kept the first part of the promise, will he keep the second part? Absolutely. So it's to build up their faith. Remember, they didn't go into the land when the spies spied out the land because they were afraid because of the giants. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. So he's saying now, God has kept everything he's promised you up to this point. Now, will he keep his promise to take you into the land and deliver it to you? And the answer is yes. How can you and I truly trust the Lord to keep his promises to us? What is the Bible here for? Has God ever broken a promise? No. If God has never broken a promise before... Is he going to break the promise to you? No. Answer is no. Does God change? No. God does not change. Does God break his covenants? No. How do you know? Psalm 89:34, my covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. So if God promised you salvation by faith, will he deliver it? Or will he change his mind and say, nah, uh-uh, uh, only blondes. Only those under three feet tall. No. The answer is God will do exactly what God has promised to do. I see a red number one out there. Let's see what it is. Replacement theology underlies confusion about years in Egypt. Replacement theology confuses a lot of things. How do we know replacement theology is wrong? Replacement theology says God's done with Israel. He cast Israel aside and replaced them with the church. Because that's the whole point, what you just got through saying. Because that's the whole point, just what I got through saying. But give me a verse that says ain't going to happen. What, what I mean is the part about keeping his covenant. If he breaks his covenant with his people and says, I'm done with you, I'm going to do this new covenant thing with the Gentiles, then how does... The Gentile know that he won't in time right. break his covenant with him. Exactly. So Even the dispersion of the Jewish people to the nations was keeping his covenant with them. That's Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36. He does exactly Even what he says. Yeah. And let's go to two different scriptures. Let's go first to Isaiah 66. Yeah, that's after Isaiah 66. Yeah. That's Jeremiah 31. Yeah. But Isaiah 66. 66. Isaiah 66. Verse 22. To say Israel's been cast aside is to call God a liar. I don't recommend showing up on judgment day standing before the Lord saying you're a liar. Don't do it. That's bad. 
Isaiah 66, 22 says, For as the new heavens and the new earth, which will I, I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord. How long will the new heavens and new earth remain? Forever and ever. So shall your descendants, your refers to Israel, your descendants and your name remain. How long will the descendants and the name of Israel remain? Forever and ever without end. Say that in Hebrew, forever and ever. Le'olam va'ed. Va'ed. Now let's go back to Jeremiah 31. Because that gives us the test. How can we test and know for sure that God has not cast off Israel? Romans says that too. He says it over and over. He says it over and over. But Daniel mentioned Jeremiah 31 first. Then we get to Romans. And also earlier we talked about it being an eternal sign, an eternal covenant, all this. How many times does God say forever or everlasting or perpetual? Again and again. If you printed out just the verses with those words saying that these commandments are eternal, it goes on for about 12 pages. So Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 33. But this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days. After those days, says, when we come to the millennial kingdom. So where's the house of Israel when we come to the millennial kingdom? Still there. Still there. Says, Lord, I will put... What's that? That's Isaiah 11. Yeah. He's going to bring them in. I'll put my Torah in their minds and write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I'll remember no more. Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for a light by day and the ordinances of the moon and the stars for light by night who disturbs the sea and its waves roar the Lord of hosts is his name. Oh, anytime you see Adonai Zavaoth, the Lord of hosts, what kind of prophecy? End times prophecy. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. So God says if the sun, moon, and stars are still out there, has he cast off Israel? No. no. Okay. I think we covered that one sufficiently. But let's go to Romans anyway, since Doc mentioned Romans. Let's see. Oh, let's see. Where's the best place to start? I'm in Romans 11 now. Let's start in 11.1. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Was he a Jew or a Gentile? He was a Jew. I say then, has God cast away his people? That's the question, isn't it? Answer? God forbid. God forbid. Mejanoito in Greek. Noe Jose in my personal translation. <laughs> Certainly not in New King James. And how does he know? He says, For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Okay. Many other places we could go, but let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 11 and start with verse 1. Deuteronomy 
Therefore, what does therefore mean? Because of this. Because of this. <laughs> you shall what? Love the Lord your God. That's where it always starts. Can you love a God in which you have no faith? No. So the faith is taken for granted. Because you cannot love a God in whom you have no faith. You shall love the Lord your God. That Lord is the tetragrammaton. Is that next word after God or? No. No, what is it? And. And. Keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments for a little while. Oh, oh, it's not a little while, is it? No, it's always. And that's a very, very sad thing. We cannot let it happen. Miss Mullaney. Good and loud. The olive and tov. Where did you put it in that verse? Where did you find it? You shall love olive tov, the Lord your God. Who is the olive and tov according to Revelation 22? That's Yeshua, our Messiah. The first part of it recites the Vayahavta, but there's something mistranslated in this verse. Therefore, it's not there. Okay. Do you see the word always? Ah, Kol Hayyamim, all of the days. So it's not just a phrase that means forever, it's each and every day. When you get up in the morning, Make sure your love and faith is steadfast. That you're walking in faith and love and honor and glory before the Lord our God. If you love the Lord your God, you will keep his commandments. Go to John 14, 15. I know you guys can all quote it, but let's write it down. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. He goes on in verse 23 to say, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him. We will come to him, make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. The word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. So how does God test our lives to see if our faith and love is real or not? Do we keep the commandments? Are we obedient? He says, if you don't keep my commandments, it's because why? You don't love me. Is there an Old Testament root to that? Maybe in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 11 and see. Maybe I'm making that side up. But you know I'm not. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by. 
What's that word by mean? This is how he decides that you have forgotten him. By not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes, which I command you today. So if you do not keep his commandments, in Deuteronomy 8.11 he says, you have forgotten me. In John 14 he says, it's because you don't love me. If you love me, keep my commandments. Let's add to that 1 John 5. Because there are people who say, oh, that doesn't mean God's commandments. Come on. Well, let's just go look and see. 1 John chapter 5. Verses 1 through 5. Whoever believes Yeshua is the Messiah is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. That takes away the argument some people make that Jewish people don't need to believe in Messiah, just in God. Verse 2 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. God bless you. And his commandments are not burdensome. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes Yeshua is the Son of God? So it says very clearly in verse 3, what is the love of God? That we keep his commandments. Why does John write this? Because the believers are starting to go off the rails and believing what? Nicolaitanism. Oh my goodness. Keep a finger in 1 John and go to Revelation chapter 2. It's funny to read the commentaries on Revelation 2 when they get to the word Nicolaitans. Most of them say, gee, we have no idea what that word means or what they're talking about. Because they don't want to know. But... In verse 6, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans' doctrine was called antinomianism. That is, that when Messiah was crucified, buried, and resurrected, the law was done away with. And now you can live any way you want to live. How does Messiah like that doctrine? Which I also hate. Is that the only time he says that? No. Verse 15. Thus you also have the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Thus means, look at the verse before. For I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, put a, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. The Nicolaitans said, hey, that's fine. No commandments anymore? Have at you like those prostitutes? Go play. Did, did that doctrine exist before the time of Yeshua? Of course it did. So uh, can you think of when the antinomianism may have begun? Was it when the Greeks took over? Nicolaitanism began in the Garden of Eden when Satan said, well, God said, but yeah, who listens to him anyway? So it's anything that's, an, that's against the law. Antinomianism, that we should not follow the commandments of God. Yeah. And 
right away, right after all of this in verse 16. In verse 16, he says, what was the first word? Repent. Repent. So obviously God wants you to turn away from that. Yeah. John writes in the last decade of the first century. 30 years after the rest of the apostles are dead and gone. And he's seeing the church veer off the rails and he's trying to get us back on track. So while people in the churches are starting to teach the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, John says in 1 John chapter 5, what is the love of God? That we keep his commandments. And turn back to 1 John chapter 3. Verse 10. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, meaning made obvious. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Righteousness is the opposite of lawlessness. Torahlessness. It's, somebody says, does the majority of modern churches hold to replacement theology? I don't know if majority is the right word or not, but it certainly is very prevalent. Says there was it normally certain sects of the Catholic Church. No, it's much beyond that. He says, I know an amillennial who denounces replacement theology, but isn't that an oxymoron? Well, I just said just a moron, but yeah, it is an oxymoron. Amillennialism says that there is no second coming of Messiah. There is no messianic kingdom. We're in the kingdom. Messiah rules and reigns right here on earth through the Pope. And the earth is just getting more godly and more godly all the time until pretty soon we're all going to be sinless and perfect. And then we'll just hand the kingdom. Becky's pointing at somebody. Who had a question? Yes. Is that referring to the, what do you call it, the Nicol, I don't know how to say Nicolaitans. Not exactly, no. Or the Jews. Uh, In Romans chapter 2, Paul says they're not all Jews who say they're Jews. What he means by that, a Jew is one who worships the true and living God. The scribes and Pharisees he called the children of Satan, right? Brood of vipers. That's who he's referring to as the synagogue of Satan. The Pharisees teach that you don't follow God's commandments, you follow our man-made rules and regulations instead. When the verse you quoted, the Jews quite often in various communities and referring to Caesarean Jews, or the Caesareans as being those who claim to be Jews that are not. I don't know if you've been familiar with that, encountered that or not. Yeah, and I've heard that of the Nazarenes and the Messianics, the Menim, yeah. But he's talking about those Jews who set aside the commandments of God to follow the man-made rules and regulations, like in, let's go to Matthew 15. Can I ask a question? Yeah, go ahead. Would it be correct to say that the Catholic Church was established on the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Would that be a correct generalization? I would say yes. Because their full purpose from the beginning was to get people to stop following God's commandments and start following man-made. Yes, Suzanne. When we were talking, I saw it, but then we had gone on. That same 
scripture where it talked about God saying to repent. He goes on and uses very strong language in that same verse. Like or else. Or else I will come after you. Yeah. And I will have a sword come out of my mouth. Slice and dice. I mean, he's not playing around. He's not playing around. A little bit more to the Catholic thing. I mean, all he really did was just change their paganism to rename the pagan gods to yeah, they denounce the scribes and Pharisees and then become the scribes and Pharisees. They do exactly the same thing. So Matthew 15. Can you explain the difference between antinomianism and syncretism? Which one came first? Antinomianism is the doctrine that God's commandments have been abolished, so we don't need to worry about them. That had to come before syncretism. Syncretism says we can merge the things from the pagan world into the worship of the true and living God. Because there are no commandments anymore, we can do that, and God will appreciate it. Of course, what did God say in Deuteronomy 12 twice? Don't worship me that way. So in Matthew chapter 15... You would say that syncretism is much on the horizon right now. We're living it. Yeah, absolutely. 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 Matthew 15. Then the scribes and Pharisees, verse 1, who were from Jerusalem, came to Yeshua, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Is the tradition of the elders the law of God? No. No, it's their man-made rules. For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. It doesn't mean they don't wash their hands. It means they don't follow the prescribed Pharisaical way of using the two-handled cup called neti lachidayim. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, Whatever profits you might have received from me is a gift to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. These are the ones he's referring to as the synagogue of Satan. Hypocrites. Hypocrite means an actor, one who pretends to be something they're not. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What do they lack? They lack faith and love. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So if your worship of God is based upon the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God, Messiah himself says your worship is in vain. Could you not paraphrase some of the same thing that you just read in that scripture? Why? I mean, when people come against us, we probably could respond, well, why do you transgress the commandments of God because of your tradition of Christmas trees and Easter eggs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, this, it's exactly a paraphrase of what you just read in Matthew 15. Yes, it absolutely is. The Catholic Church in the 4th century simply did what the Pharisees had done. Yeah, exactly. What has Satan always wanted to do is clear in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25. He wants to change the commandments of God. The times and the seasons. And the times and the seasons. So what did the Catholic Church do first? Passover to Easter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, ma'am. Is the entire Western Church now? Just about. Okay. Just about. 
Yeah. So in Matthew chapter 7, Messiah says the broad road is leading where? To perdition. The narrow road and few there be who find it are leading to life. All of those on both roads think they're saved going to heaven. And the vast majority, he says, are not. Isn't that heartbreaking? How many years did you teach in Dozen at a particular spot that I won't mention? That was Ridgecrest Baptist Church, but she won't mention it. Go ahead. And you were teaching all of this then. Yeah. 50 to 75 people or more in attendance every time. Yeah. And yet we had, they had to run and get the very biggest Christmas tree for the foyer. And then every year on Saturday, there was the big Easter egg hunt. Yeah. I mean, it never stopped. Never stopped. The whole time you were teaching these wonderful truths. Regrettably true. Okay. Let's go back to Deuteronomy before I get preachy anyway. Deuteronomy 11.1 1, Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments all of the days. Is today a day? Then it includes today. Is tomorrow a day? It includes tomorrow. So verse 2, know today that I do not speak with your children who have not known and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God, his greatness and his mighty hand, his outstretched arm. Why, why does Moses say that? Who's he talking to? Future. No. He says, I'm not talking oh, not to the future. I'm talking to you who know. You saw with your own eyes. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what I'm telling you is true because you were there. Now, we who follow, we get to read about it. But they saw it with their own eyes. And yet, go up to Hebrews. Look at Hebrews. Blessed are they that do not see and yet they believe. Yep, but that's not where we're going. <laughs> it's a good verse. But in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, it tells us that these people who saw the mountain on fire, who heard the words of God with their own ears, lacked faith. They saw it and lacked faith. Verse 18, Hebrews 3, 18. To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. unbelief. Why did they not obey? Fear. Because they didn't believe. It says they lacked faith. They feared. They feared the giant the land and they came back with evil report. Yeah, but did they have faith in God? God destroyed the giants, Sihon and Og. The children of Israel didn't have to do it. He took care of it. And yet, they were afraid they couldn't take the land of Israel because of the giants in it. We're in the same place today. Yeah. Fear of people, ruin people's lives. Yeah. Linda. The 18 and 19 is, is referring to those people who died in the wilderness before they had the second chance to go into the land. Uh, uh, wait, this is how I understand it. It's probably wrong. I didn't say it's wrong. It's referring to the, the people that died in the wilderness 
So the people he is literally speaking to at that moment are those who were children, who were young, who who didn't refuse to go in. They didn't have that power. They were just right. They were too young. They were too young. Right. So these are the ones that grew up knowing. Right. Okay. okay. You're absolutely right. Back to Deuteronomy 11. When it says in verse 2, have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God. What does it mean, the chastening? How did God discipline the people when they would disobey him in the wilderness? He would bring judgments upon him, right? Why? Because he liked to hurt people? Or because he wanted to bring them to repentance? Yeah. Whom the Father loves, he chastens. Verse 3, his signs and his acts which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to all, all his land. Let me take a drink. What he did to the army of Egypt. What did he do to the army of Egypt? Taught him that chariots don't float, right? Yeah, drown him in the sea. To their horses and their chariots, how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them as they pursued you. How the Lord has destroyed them to this day. Meaning, the power of Egypt was never the same. The same. Never. What he did for you in the wilderness until he came to this place. What did he do for him in the wilderness? He just fed him with manna from heaven. Gave him water from the rock. Protected them from their enemies. Made sure their clothes and shoes didn't wear out. That's all. And what he did to Dathan and a buyer of the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben. Uh-oh. What did they do? They said, who made you guys priests and Levites? We can do that too. How the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up. Their households, their tents, and all the substance that was in their possessions in the midst of all Israel. Moses is saying, you've seen how God reacts to disobedience. And you've seen how God blesses obedience. So which do you prefer? Life or death? Choose life. Choose life. Verse 7, but your eyes have seen every great act of the Lord which he did. And Linda's right. These people that are left, they're just days from entering the promised land. They're not the ones who died in the wilderness. But they've seen everything that took place. Hmm. Verse 8 says, therefore. Before we get to verse 8, I want to go back and read about Dathan and Abiram. Back in Numbers chapter 16. Because to me, this is very significant. Numbers chapter 16, verse 1. We'll just skip here and there through 16 and not read all 40 verses. It says, Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohat, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Pelah, sons of Reuben, took him in. 
And they rose up before Moses with some of the children of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, representatives of the congregation, men of renown. What's that mean? They're important leaders, well-known leaders. They have the ability to sway the hearts of the people. It says, verse 3, They gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. Is that true? No. Were they all holy? No. What makes them holy? What makes them sep separated and set apart? Faith. Faith, Faith and, obedience and obedience to God's commandments. Were they all obedient? Yeah, they They're standing up in the face of those God appointed and saying, you take too much upon yourselves for all the congregation is holy, every one of them. And the Lord's among them. Then why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Who put the Levites in the place of service of God? God did. They didn't take it upon themselves. Well, they're criticizing God. They are criticizing God. Saying God should have chosen me. Look at verse 20. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that it may consume them in a moment. Then they fell on their faces and said, O oh God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and you be angry with all the congregation? So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. So God says, We'll see who will be faithful to me, and who will join the rebellion? Draw a line in the sand and let people go to whichever side they want. Verse 30. Well, we'll go to verse 28. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. So if they die of old age, eh, I was making it up. But if the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into the pit, then you'll understand what these men that these men have rejected who? The Lord. The Lord. Not me. Moses realized it's not him they're rejecting. They're rejecting the Lord because of lack of faith. Verse 31, now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words. That was a prophetic word. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't a month later, it wasn't a year later, that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah with all their goods. So come back to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Lashon Hara, the evil tongue. Yeah. So back to Deuteronomy chapter 11. And I actually mean 11 this time, don't I? How about that? Okay. To verse 8, which is translated incorrectly. Therefore you shall keep every commandment. Is that what the Hebrew says? All. It says, therefore you shall keep all of the commandment. Referring back to Deuteronomy 6. All the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God are one commandment. 
You cannot separate it like, oh, let's say, into moral, civil, and ceremonial so that you could ignore two of the three kinds. God says, if you pick and choose, then you're not following me. You're doing what's right in your own eyes. And let me not get out of myself because that's going to come up in a few minutes is every man did what was right in his own eyes. So verse 8, it should say, therefore you shall keep all of the commandment which I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land which you cross over to possess. Does God promise to give them possession of the land if they live in disobedience? No, he does not. You got to watch those little words, if and then. Verse 9. And that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore to give your fathers to them and their descendants, the land flowing with milk and honey. What did God promise if they turn away from me and turn and worship other gods? No. Are they going to get to stay in the land? No, no they're going to get sent into yeah. captivity. So if you want to prolong your days in the land, what must you do? Keep. Obey out of love. love. Verse 10, 4, the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you came, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. What's he talking about? Irrigation, that's exactly right. The water source in Egypt was the Nile River, but you had to do irrigation ditches and things to bring the water from the Nile over to your garden. But that's not the way the land of, of Israel is. In the land of Israel, God gives rain in its seasons. God waters. And what happens to the land of Israel when God waters it in its season? It flourishes. It produces bountifully. How many crops do they get in Israel each year? Three crops. Yeah. The desert blooms like a rose. That's the first thing you see. When you leave Ben-Gurion Airport and start driving up to Jerusalem as you drive through valley after valley of the most beautiful flowers. And, and you just think of the prophecy that the valley will, will blossom like the rose. and it, You just see it and it's amazing. It is beautiful. Verse 11, but the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water from the rain of heaven. A land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it. From the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. God did not ask for possession of the whole world. God asked for this piece of land. He says, this is mine. You can have the rest, but this is mine. He cares for it. He tends for it. What's that? Who did he ask it of? He didn't ask it of anyone. <laughs> he determined, he said, this piece is mine. His boundaries. And that's why he kicked out the Amorites, because you're not going to live in his land nope. if you're not going to worship him. That's why if the children of Israel go astray and start worshiping the pagan gods, they will go into captivity. They will not be in his piece of land. He's very careful about that. Verse 13, here we go. 
And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God, that's first, and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. But what is the Hebrew word for earnestly? There isn't one. This is an infinitive of emphasis. So if you obeyingly obey my commandments, it just, it uses two forms of the verb for obey to emphasize. So many times or mostly it's translated, you shall surely obey. Or if you really obey, that's what it means by earnestly. If you actually do it, don't talk about it, don't think about it, just do it. So that if you actually keep my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Why does he keep coming back to the heart? That is so important. God wants you to be obedient because you love him. Deuteronomy 11, 13 through verse 21 these words are in the mezuzah that you see on doorposts like at my house, along with Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. So if you were to take off the mezuzah and open up the scroll, the first thing you see is to love the Lord your God, and that there is no other God. So it's important. So look at verse 13 again. It shall be that if you earnestly obey my commands, I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him. The word for serve is an interesting word. Generally, when you look at the Hebrew, when you see the word serve in English, what is the verb? It's avad, which means work. Work. If you do what God tells you to do, that's what it means to serve the Lord your God. And if you serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season. If the rain comes in its season, the crops flourish. If the rains come in the wrong seasons, the crops are destroyed. So the blessing of God is a plentiful harvest. The curse of God is famine, inadequate harvests. You know, Wayne, we heard stories of when the children of Israel, in modern days, were in like the Gushkatit area, they would like throw a, an orange seed out in the yard, and lo and behold, an orange tree would come up, you know. It was just uh, so not being cultivated. That's the, the blessing that, we, that we've seen, and even in modern times, when the Jewish people actually occupying the land they're supposed to be. And that's part of the area they were kicked out of. We all should know that story. But yeah. That's, uh, yeah. So if you read the writings of Samuel Langhorn Clemens, who we otherwise know as Mark Twain, he tells you the land of Israel was uninhabitable. Nobody would want it. Until God brought the children of Israel back, then the rains fell in its season and the people worked the land, and it is blossoming, blossoming like it always did before. You know, in our English language, when we talk about rain, it's like in a negative way, like, don't rain on my parade. Oh, yeah. Things. But in Israel, it's always about rain of blessing. It's yep. seen as a blessing because 
there are only certain times when we get the rain, and it's a blessing when it right. at those times. Yeah, it doesn't rain all year long in Israel like it does here. There's just the early season and the latter season, the early rain and the latter rain. So look at verse 14, because there's more to this verse than meets the eye. Then I'll give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil, that is to bring in the harvest. But there's another meaning for the early rain and the latter rain, isn't there? The first and second coming of Messiah. And his first and second coming are for the purpose of what? Bringing in the harvest. So God promises Messiah will come if the people will love the Lord our God. And does that make you think of Matthew twenty three thirty nine when the people cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, he's coming? What's that, Bill? Uh, verse 8 and 9, back up a little bit. Back up to 8 and 9, okay. Uh, therefore you shall keep every commandment which I command you today that you may be strong and go in and possess the land which you cross over to possess in, in verse 9. Is that similar fashion to uh, physical death passing over into spiritual life? For the believers and, 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 and followers? I can't say yes or no because I really hadn't thought about that. So let's contemplate that one. So, uh, yeah, okay, so it's just, it's kind of like, wow, this and... Yep, coming over and, and entering into the land is a picture of entering into God's Sabbath rest, yes. which is the millennial kingdom, yes. and I think maybe that's where you're going. So go up to the book of Hebrews to chapter 4. Yeah. Yep. And we'll get to that. We will. In Hebrews chapter 4, after telling us that those who died in the wilderness didn't get to go in and possess the land because of their disobedience, and they disobeyed because of a lack of faith, chapter 4 verse 1 begins with, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest. He says that because David, who was a prophet, sang about the entering into God's rest that was in the future. So if the entering into God's rest happened in the days of Joshua, David wouldn't sing about the future. So he says, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. The gospel was preached to those in the wilderness. But the words they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with what? Faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter, it's will enter, change that verb, will enter that rest as he has said, so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And let's get down to verse 9. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. That word rest there is sabbatismos which means only and specifically a Sabbath rest. I thought the Sabbath was done away with. Nope. Never has been, never will be. Let's go on to, well, we've done those verses. So we won't do those verses again. As we go back to 
Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13 and 14. Just make a note in your notes again as of John 14, 15 and 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Which emphasize to us in the New Testament that it's still true. That if you love the Lord, you will keep his commandments. And then in verse 14, about the early and latter rain, let's go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. What happens when the people are disobedient and the Lord withholds the rain? Famine. Famine. What happens when they are obedient and the rain's in its season? Abundant crops. Then they have abundant crops. So let's go to Malachi 3.8. <laughs> Has anybody driven across the Mississippi lately? We have. It's almost dry. If you, as you drive across it, two-thirds of the way across, there is no water at all. In the middle, there's so little water that the boys that are supposed to float on top are laying on their sides because they're on the bottom. They can't bring the barges down the river anymore because there's not enough water. So in Malachi 3.8. What's that? Yeah, the Euphrates is drying up. Yep. Many of the rivers have. Yeah, those caves are interesting, aren't they? Okay. Malachi 3.8. Global warming, climate change. Oh, have you been watching COP27? They should just call it God's judgment, not global warming. Yeah, the climate change conference this year was in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. And the Pope and many of the world's religious leaders went to what they considered to be Mount Sinai, though they went the wrong place. And they took stone tablets designed to look like the Ten Commandments and smashed them. Oh, Lord. Smashed them and then wrote a new Ten Commandments. And the new Ten Commandments are what was on the Georgia Guidestones about reducing the earth's population. Oh, yeah. Okay. Back to scripture. Oh, wait a minute. We got more questions out here. Let's see. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. Okay. So let's get to Malachi 3, verses 8 and 10, which I'm sure many of you have heard from many pulpits about you didn't put enough money in the offering plate, and that's not what this has to do at all. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. Tithes and offerings were never money, they were food. 10% of the children of Israel were Levites and priests. They served in the temple doing the services for the rest of the people before God. The rest of the people raised food and brought a tenth of their increase to the Levites who gave a tenth to the priests so that they could continue to minister in God's temple. So when the people stopped bringing the food to the temple, the priests and Levites leave the temple to go out and raise food, and they stop doing these services to God. 
So it says, you are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse. The storehouse is the food section of the temple where the food is stored for the priests and the Levites. That there may be food in my house. It literally means that there may be food in the temple for the priests and Levites. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven. Oh, how many people say that means that the money will just rain down on you? No, it's actually talking about the rain. The windows of heaven refer to the clouds and the rains that come. And pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So don't think that if you bring the tithe to the storehouse so the priests can do their duties, that you're going to go hungry. God won't allow that. The rains will come in its season and there will be plenty. There will be no shortage. Well, I think you, know, you consider what the scriptures call the fullness of time is when Yeshua came. That not everybody was participating in farming, so they did give, like the widow's might, for instance, they did give uh, money. Yeah, but that's not a tithe. Not, it's yeah, entirely different. Yeah. Tithe is mandatory. The widow's mite was a voluntary offering. There's always been voluntary offerings. It's when you call it a tithe that make it mandatory that my teeth grind. I'm running out of time, but let's finish this verse anyway. Oh, no, we won't. I won't do that to you. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, and we will finish verse 14 as we look at the prophetic applications and how it relates to the first and second coming of Messiah.